cyber war is the hacking of networks. Like war is the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes and lies and the network's own algorithms, but with real-world effect. ISIS embraces the idea that the world is now watching the social media and weaponizes it. It creates a hashtag for it, all eyes on ISIS. It wants the world to watch because it has figured out a way not just to achieve the attention of the world, but to change the hearts and minds and the physical actions of the Iraqi soldiers who are watching the same thing trend on you know, their smartphones. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation I had with P.W. Singer. He is the author of several books, including as co-author with August Cole, the book Ghost Fleet, which is an MWI favorite. His most recent book, which he wrote with Emerson Brooking, is called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. It just came out in the past few weeks, and many of our readers will at least have heard of it because it has generated a lot of buzz. Many have also probably read it. It is part history, part analysis of current events, and even part sort of horizon scanning. I've really enjoyed reading it, and I also really enjoyed the chance to hear more about it in the conversation you're about to listen to. Really quickly, before we get to that, just a couple things. First, I want to say a very sincere thank you to those of you who have subscribed and listened to the episodes. It is an absolute thrill to get feedback on the podcast and to see more and more people listening to every episode. If this is the first episode you've listened to, we would love it if you would subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, hope you enjoy the episode. Peter Singer, thanks so much for joining us for an episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about uh, your book, your newest book. Uh, it's called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, which you co-authored with Emerson Brooking. Uh, I wonder if kind of just to kind of frame this conversation, if you could maybe answer the question of why, why did you decide to write a book about social media and war? Uh, the spark for this was a series of events almost five years back, uh, and they each illustrated uh, how the world was changing and um, how social media was reshaping news, politics, and war, but also how news, politics, and war uh, were changing the internet for the rest of us. And the launching pad was um, first you had uh, an, a conflict between Israel and Hamas, and they've had many of these before. Uh, but what was different about it is that it was launched with an airstrike that was then um, uh, put up on YouTube, uh, whereupon Hamas um, argues back online. And then you have what was known as the first Twitter war. And you had not just the sides going back and forth online, but more than 10 million um, other people weighing in uh, from around around the world. And they each had different, um, the IDF versus Hamas each had different organizational approaches to how they were trying to mobilize and win the online fight. But what was notable is uh, not just that each of us from beyond could click in and help, you know, weigh whether one side was winning or not. 
we later learned it had real world effect. Uh, a study found that um, a, over there was a 50% shift in uh, the airstrike frequency and targeting based on which side was winning online or not. Uh, in essence, the politicians and the generals were watching not only what was happening on the map, but also what was playing out in their Twitter feed. We now know that's you know something else that, that plays out. Uh, you had a second thing that pl- happened where there was a terrorist group that seized a shopping center uh, in Kenya, um, Al-Shabaab. And because of press limitations, because of the way that the Kenyan government uh, handled it, for a period of time, the terrorist group, which was online, was the world's primary source of information about the terror attack. And then they, not so surprisingly, realized they didn't have to tell the truth. And so they weren't just seizing the world's imagination, but they were using social media to accomplish the broader goal of terrorism. Uh, And then you had the third, which was a change in actually US military policy, which was to allow deployed service members to use social media. And you suddenly had this new thing where uh, not only could a US soldier follow, in quotation marks, friend, a member of the Taliban who might be online, but in turn, the member of the Taliban could reach out and like and friend and follow not just that soldier, but their family members back home. You had this, this uh, each of these illustrated how the, the home front, the battle space was changing. So that was the start of this. There was something new, big going on, and we wanted to explore it a little bit further. And you know, then we saw events that happened from uh, the rise of ISIS uh, and how social media was wrapped up into everything from its emergence, its growth, its communications, its ability to recruit some 30,000 people from around the world to join it, to how it wove it into battlefield operations. We then started um, exploring examples that ranged from uh, uses of it in Ukraine to Mexican drug wars to hold it. We're seeing the same phenomena in drug wars and gang wars inside the United States and Chicago. And then along came the 2016 election and all the same dynamics, including many of the same players were happening in our own politics. And that led to an expansion of the project. And uh, so in essence, what Like War, the book is about is five years of research on, again, how news, politics and war are both playing out online, but in terms, in turn, how what's playing out online is reshaping the real world. Another way of putting it is, if cyber war is the hacking of networks, like war is the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes and lies and the network's own algorithms but with real world effect. It can, it can shape the outcome of a physical battle. It can shape the outcome of an election. It can shape the outcome of um, which movie you decide to go to. And that's one of the other uh, lessons that came out of the project when we were examining everything from ISIS's top recruiter to the Trump campaign and how it did it to how Taylor Swift does it. Across this space, the very same tactics were being utilized by seemingly wildly different groups that actually had the same online goals, but with very different real world consequences. So I'm going to ask a question that, uh, that I guess I find very interesting, uh, and, 
and hopefully listeners will too. And that's about process. And, you know, when you sit down to, you know, you've got kind of a general idea of what you want to write about when you write a book um, or when you write anything really. Uh, and then, and then it's, there's kind of a process of establishing boundaries, you know, what falls into this, what doesn't. Uh, and one of the things that I find interesting is that there are a lot of terms, you know, social media is one of those things people just assume it's okay. It's Facebook, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, it's whatever. But because of the way that online platforms and tools develop organically, um, both as kind of a constellation of tools, but in each tool itself too, you know, Twitter has, you know, looks dramatically different today than it did when it was launched. Um, did you struggle kind of definitionally with things like what is social media versus, you know, just more traditional, maybe web platforms? What is, you know, you use the word hacking. Hacking used to mean something very specific. We kind of have broadened what it means. Did you, did you run into any sort of struggles with that? You actually touched on something that's, I think, crucially important is this space. Um, we, most of us, or we all, you know, as evidenced by how you and I are talking right now, um, we're online, we're using it, but, uh, and, and we, I think have grown to know that it has great import. Um, if you don't think what matters online, uh, affects the real world, then you must not have heard of who the U S president <laughs> is, or you must not have heard of, uh, who ISIS is. Um, but the point is we have this and yet we generally don't have a good handle on everything from its history to the common tools and terms to the tactics uh you know so the history um i'm sure almost all the listeners could uh tell the story of you know benjamin franklin and his kite or um you know no thomas edison and the light bulb and yet if you asked him about the origin of the internet um and the key players and that and of course how the decisions that they made back then shaped the world today most people wouldn't be able to do that uh the same thing when it comes to the terms um and that's one of the the aspects that we really tried to play with in the book um, anytime we used a term, even if it was something that was seemingly common, uh, social media to troll, we would pull back and explain the history of that term and where it came from, uh, how it sometimes was used in a realm before the internet. So if you think about media, you know, we use it all the time, but media, the term dates back to it's, it's in the middle. Um, and it links back, at least in terms of its application to the field of journalism being known as the media, um, or you look at troll, um, troll, you know, it, it, while we like to think of it as, uh, you know, some monster lives under a bridge, uh, it's actually links back, um, in terms of its use on the internet, its first use is basically an echo of it's kind of a combine of the idea of, of phishing trolling, but more importantly, from the Vietnam War. Uh, the tactic of trolling was something that US Air Force pilots would do. Uh, they would describe it as trolling when they would kind of lurk just on the edge of enemy air defenses to uh, kind of bait. Um, uh, 
inexperienced pilots uh, play on their emotions um, so that they would zoom out outside of the air defense. And then the American pilots who'd been feigning that they were weak would quickly turn back and attack them. And that, you know, the first uses of trolling um, on the, uh, in the early internet days is the same where you would uh, post questions um, designed to take uh, advantage of newbies um, questions that you, you really didn't want the answer. You were just trying to spin them up. You were trying to play with their emotions. We also see how often these terms are used to describe things that they're not. So, you know, we unpack for readers. You'll often hear people say, oh, the Russian trolls. Well, they're actually not the same as the trolls uh, that, you know, this origin term, what we're really talking about is sock puppet accounts um, or bot accounts or the like. And so that's one of the points of the book is to equip us to um, understand this world. And then the same thing, looking at the tactics that work. Uh, If this is a space that we use for, again, everything from our dating lives to um, our news, to marketing, to, oh, by the way, it has real effect on warfare. It has real effect on politics. Then we better understand it. I would just add one other thing that, that points to the methodology of the book is that another challenge that I've seen in this space that we tried to go after with the book is that weirdly for what is a network, our approach has been stovepiped and that's limited our understanding. And when I say our, I mean everything from the analysts who study it to the journalists who report to the military leaders that try and shape uh, what to do about it on the battlefield to politicians in Congress, you name it. So you would have you know, people who are interested in and write on and study and react to what ISIS is doing. They really were not aware of, did not care much about, say, what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Similarly, the people who uh, write about, study American domestic politics, all the way up to the uh, reporters on the campaign trail weren't familiar with, didn't really care about uh, Russian information warfare tactics. Uh, In turn, each of those spaces, not all that interested in Silicon Valley culture or um, the flip side, pop culture, what what Taylor Swift is doing. And so you would see these uh, events play out, which someone who knew one space would find completely natural and would be utterly mystifying to someone else. So to use that example of uh, American domestic politics, the Russians are deploying tactics that are not well understood, certainly not handled well in everything from the reporting to the policy that anyone who's been following Russia and Ukraine or actually, you know, Russian Cold War tactics would be like, of course, you know, why are you surprised by this? This is this is totally normal. And so that's what we try to do in the book is bring all of these different, both geographic cases together, but also across the chronology, and then a variety of um, uh, issue areas or topics of study, you know, blending everything from uh, psychology to military history. Similarly, in the interviews, we found that you know, for a, a space that while it is technology, it, it's about the people, it's about influencing us, it's steered by us. There wasn't a lot of interviewing going on. So we went around interviewing everything from um, the literal creators of the internet. You know, what do you think of what happened to your space to uh, recruiters for extremist groups to uh, people within the military uh, from those working on the operations to those commanding them, um, you know, all the way up to, to General Michael Flynn, who then illustrates how 
people moving into the political space uh, to um, ones that uh, technology company executives to ones that actually had a lot of insight, but people weren't pulling in. Uh, so for example, we interviewed the um, one of the top reality stars, uh, a, a young man who actually was the person who originally brought the Kardashians into our lives as a producer. And then he was a um, TV star, one of these shows, and basically talked us through how you manipulate uh, people in the media to get what you want. And it was incredibly insightful. And then we're pairing him up with a visit a couple of days later to the State Department to learn about ISIS counter propaganda. And so by bringing together these different perspectives, these different geographic locations, uh, these um, different fields, I think you are able to get at the heart of the matter by coming after it from multiple different perspectives. You said that, um, you know, one of the things that you sought to do was really to kind of um, establish the chronology of these developments, both in the technological space and in the, you know, the way that warfare itself has kind of evolved to change over time. Uh, I can attest to that because after reading your book, I know the exact date and time down to the minute that the emoticon was born, the, the <laughs> colon hyphen parentheses uh, to demonstrate emotion in, uh, I guess, in a form that prior to that, there was no way of doing so without, you know, maybe an exclamation point here or there to demonstrate, you know, enthusiasm. But And, and, I, and let me intervene there. It, it, it's such a wonderful story because it, it's almost it, it seems almost like a perfect scene from the tv show big bang theory where basically yeah. you know the very first use of the emoticon is essentially these you know science nerds arguing about the proper way to react to a joke um and any and, and you know ah but this is the you know the perfect and and they, they really get into it and i just you know and that's what's so wonderful about this space is that you again you have this mix of the serious uh, the scary, uh, and then the incredibly amusing, and it's all playing out right in front of us. Yeah. The, the, the history of it, you know, you compare, you talk about Blitzkrieg at one point in, in one of the yeah. er, er, pretty early on in the book and how, um, you know, and I think that that gets to, uh, this really important question about, you know, whether or not if something is kind of evolutionary or revolutionary, and 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 maybe even to the to the deeper question of whether or not there is a binary distinction between those things, because Blitzkrieg did, you know, evolve very organically, um, you know, in in sort of the minds, collective minds of military thinkers in Germany, um, in response to certain things, and it happened in a particular context, and that I mean that is that's what evolution is, and yet as a historian, if you look back at it, that's clearly a revolutionary development. Did you ever get to the point that? you know, maybe this isn't revolutionary, maybe it is just evolutionary. And it's just, you know, the latest stage, or, or does this represent something fundamentally different than say the way that TV had an impact on the Vietnam War? Yeah, I think I'm so you know, these are one of those wonkier questions that, um, uh, you know, is, there's a little bit of this in the book, but actually links back to some of my um, past work on, uh, uh, for example, Wired for War with Robotics or the like. Um, there are a series of uh, buzzword uh, terms, um, it goes back to what you're talking about, of, of definitions um, to describe this, and, and they kind of change in popularity. So, uh, you know, f roughly 15 years back, revolutionary was the buzzword going around the Pentagon. Uh, right now, the buzzword is disruptive. Uh, if you're outside the military, <laughs> weirdly enough, it's killer app. Um they go by lots of different definitions. Uh, how I define it uh, is essentially they give you a series of questions that 
you weren't wrestling with a generation earlier. And again, there's a caveat here, and this is the difference with how revolutionary technology is sometimes talked about. Notice I said questions. I didn't say it will somehow solve all your problems or it will, you remember in the Rumsfeld era, it was like, oh, it's going to lift the fog of war. No. What defines something as revolutionary, disruptive, is that it gives you these questions that we don't have the answers for yet, that we weren't asking ourselves a generation earlier. And importantly, they're questions of two type. They're questions of what is possible that wasn't possible before. And then the second, and maybe tougher type, is um, questions of what is proper that we weren't wrestling with before. And that what is proper, that what is right or wrong, might be the right or wrong way to um, organize or recruit or uh, the right or wrong doctrine. Um, maybe the thorniest is legal or ethical right or wrong questions. And this allows you to, uh, there's definitively continuity um, with revolutionary technologies or disruptive technologies, uh, patterns there. But again, then the very fact that they're disruptive or revolutionary means that they're giving you these new set of questions. So um, social media, uh, it what has made it so important is it combines the two different types of communication technology uh, revolution or change together. Essentially, whether you're talking about printing press or telegraph or radio or television, and again, each one of these, I don't think it's um, arguable that each one of these was incredibly important to the story of politics and war. Uh, you know, the the telegraph um, it affects everything from uh, military operations and planning to how a public um, interacts with conflict. The television uh, changes everything from the attributes. Uh, that a good politician needs, they need to be telegenic, to it uh, can shape how wars um, even end. Uh, Johnson uh, famously crying out after Walter Cronkite um, turns against the war that you know now he's lost it because he's lost Cronkite, mm. not because of uh, what happened on the battlefield. But the point is you, you, you see see that these technologies can be important. What's, what's fascinating is that these previous technologies either allowed connection at kind of at a, at a, at a distance uh, of either geography or time, think the story of the telegraph or the telephone, or they allowed broadcast one to many, uh, the radio or the television. What social media has done is brought those two previous revolutions together. So one can speak to many and simultaneously, you have the one-to-one. Uh, and that one-to-one might be in conversation or it might be in um, micro-targeting, and it's constantly interactive. So what it, I don't think it's arguable that it has introduced a set of new questions of what is possible that was unimaginable before. Uh, again, um, we, we begin the book with uh, illustrations of that. The um, opening line of the book is Donald Trump's very first tweet uh, back in 2009. You would not have said, aha, here's the, uh, a key moment in the story of a future uh, president, and not just a future president, but a larger uh, change in politics domestically, geopolitically, you name it. And yet that was a marker moment. And it had seemingly nothing to do with politics is, you know, again, do you know the story of his first tweet? I do. I went back and read all his old tweets for you. Um, it's uh, actually 
turns to social media as a way to try and convince people to uh, watch him read the top 10 list on Letterman as a way to try and convince people to watch the season finale of The Apprentice, which is sinking in ratings uh, around the period that he's just gone through another bankruptcy. And yet, you know, as he himself describes, social media was uh, core and one of the key factors um, in his rise to the presidency. A different example of the kind of unimaginable, the sea change uh, is the next story in the book of um, uh, hashtag all eyes on ISIS, uh, a group that is, you know, again, defined by social media and everything from its rise to its operations, but it also changes the way it operates. Uh, it's about to launch an invasion. Uh, normally with invasions, you try and keep them a secret. Uh, you don't share with the world your plans. You definitely don't share with the other side your plans. Uh, you know, think of the Battle of uh, Normandy. And instead, ISIS embraces the idea that the world is now watching with social media and weaponizes it. It creates a hashtag for it, all eyes on ISIS. It wants the world to watch because it has figured out a way not just to achieve the attention of the world, but to change the hearts and minds and the physical actions of the Iraqi soldiers who are watching the same thing trend on you know their smartphones. Uh, to you know the the questions of right and wrong, legal, moral, ethical, uh, you know, you go back a generation, no one would have um, said, okay, this young kid um, who, you know, if, I mean, we, we go back roughly 20 years, he's, I mean, we probably not have the date exactly, but he's just created um, uh, ZuckNet, which is uh, a computer network to link together the family computer and his dad's dentist office. Okay, yeah, this young guy is not just going to be one of the world's uh, richest people, uh, but he is going to be the most uh, among the most powerful actors in all of global war and politics. Uh, he is going to personally make decisions that can tilt the playing field of everything from the outcome of elections to uh, which terrorist groups will be able to thrive or not. To to give a recent example, um, he is going to take away the ability of a set of uh, military leaders who are also the authoritarian leaders of their country. Uh, he's going to take away their ability to coordinate a mass killing uh, by simply saying, you can't use my network anymore. Uh, and that all those questions, though, will equally raise should he have this power to when should he use his power and what does it mean for free speech, et cetera. And again, you know, so I don't think it's, if you want to argue that, that social media doesn't matter, that's fine. You're going to miss out. And I don't mean you, I just kind of mean the, the broader discourse of it. And again, let me be clear. There, there are clear continuities and that's why, for example, we weave in, you know, the story of Clausewitz and the, the title of the book, like war uh, is a bit of a tip of the hat to him and that you know, he was right. You, you have this uh, war and politics combining uh, and that plays out, including in these seemingly light and airy spaces of social media. But in turn, there's other things that he would not be able to wrap his head around. Uh, for example, the idea of a battle space that is simultaneously for fun, but also it's um, human created and for profit. Uh, so, you know, you have military tactics, but you also have them playing out on, um, you know, algorithms that were designed for something else. You know, you, you the the example that you talked about with ISIS, um, 
and and both sides of, of of that conflict in both Iraq and Syria have have leveraged these tools, and I think it makes sense. It's sort of intuitive, especially to those of us who who've kind of come of age in an era of um, you know wars with non-state actors, uh, counterinsurgency wars amongst the population. That these are the sorts of tools that that would be you know I guess brought into the fighting when when you have non-state actors involved. Russia is a state that, as you write about pretty extensively, obviously they play a very central role in uh, in in the book, in the narrative that you're kind of crafting here, uh, Russia has done this as you know, probably better than almost any other state. Although you give some other examples of, of states that kind of fought back and, and leveraged those tools to, to wield against say their own people. But in the case of Russia and their, you know, it's been coined their new generation warfare that they have, um, integrated information warfare, information operations, um, very kind of deeply and cohesively into uh, their broader military doctrine and, and strategy. Um, you sort of, I mean, I think you, you basically say as directly as you can that we don't do that and we haven't done that very well. What is it, you know, do, do you have any, guess? did you reach any conclusions about why we uh, in the United States and maybe in the West more broadly just aren't very good at it? <laughs> uh, you have this sad irony that the nation that literally created the internet is the one that other nations point to now of don't let what happened to them happen to us. Right. Uh, when I say other nations, I mean, you know, defense planners, et cetera. And they're quite open about it. Um, we, you know, we cite a couple of, in the conclusion chapter of the book. Um, there's a variety of reasons, but I think whether it's on a national level to the individual level, and this is not just the case with social media, but you could argue it's just with you know technology or maybe problems in general. Uh, when things go bad, it often comes down to two core reasons, uh, arrogance and ignorance. Uh, arrogance, uh, it might be arrogance that, um, well, this could never happen to us. So you, know, you see these examples of these types of activities being used to target um, Ukraine or Poland or Brexit, and but we're stunned that they're used against us, shocked by it, surprised by it. Uh, similarly, the the tactics that ISIS was using, they were not the the only one to come up with them. Uh, you you could see examples and everything from you know as I mentioned the back and forth between the IDF and Hamas to use by other terrorist groups, etc. Uh, so. That similar kind of arrogance might also be um, arrogance in terms of the creators. There's a pattern of technology creators of only assuming that that good could come out of their product. Um, and a uh, particular issue within Silicon Valley has been the idea that doing well and doing good are perfectly aligned. Oh, this is yeah. great for my profit and it's great for the real world. Um, they're not always perfectly aligned. And as we've seen, these products can be abused, misused, um, you know, both good and bad actors will get their hands on it. Um, and then the other part of it is ignorance, uh, simply put, not understanding the new rules of the game, and as a result, being uh, taken advantage of. And it is not coincidental that Russia was better and arguably remains better at these uh, new types of operations because of two reasons. One, in some ways, they're not new types of operations. Uh, as we explore in the book, there's a long history to this. Um, in many ways, these are just taking 
programs that had been used by the Soviet Union, you know, dating back to the very origin of the concepts, even the word itself of disinformation in the 1920s to there's an almost perfect parallel between some of the operations in 2016 with uh, KGB campaigns like Project Infection, uh, which was an active measures campaign to spread um, conspiracy theory and false data about um, the origin of AIDS. Um, so one, they've been at it for a long period of time. And then second, uh, they dedicated organizational resources of people, time, money, particularly, uh, in the Putin era. And we go into the depth on that, you know, the, these, the internet research agencies, an example, the, the hub that's been behind a lot of this disinformation, uh, there's a history to it. Um, there's a strategy behind it. It didn't come out of nowhere, uh, by the opposite we're just now waking up to these problems uh, and just now starting to understand them. And that's, again, part of the point of the book is to give us the better tools uh, to deal, to, to kind of pop this bubble of both arrogance and ignorance. Do you think, you know, I, on the question of whether or not we, and when I say we, I mean, I guess, kind of the U.S. government and, and the U.S. military maybe specifically, are on the question of whether or not we are going to figure it out and get better at it and mitigate some of the challenges that that weaponized social media, weaponized information presents. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I want to be a optimist and I don't want to be a pe- pessimist. So I'm just going to say I'm trying to be a realist. <laughs> so I you know put my analytic hat back on and every single technology, whether it was the very first stone picked up to drones today, to social media, they have been and will be used both for good and for bad, by good and bad people. Uh, and you know, we tried to achieve that through the book's structure where every issue, every dynamic, every tactic that we're trying to explain for people we would give a good and a bad example, a character that shows the positive empowering side of this and a character maybe, or a scene that scares you. Uh, and to circle back to your prior question, the outcome of this illustrates how this technology is different. That is, we all have a vote in which side wins out, the good or the bad. We all individually decide what to watch, what to click on. And that shapes not only our experience, but the experience of everyone else in our networks, our friends, our families. And it also shapes the overall trend online. So it is up to us to decide whether good or bad wins out. And I circle back to where we were before, the only way to achieve it for the good side to win out, whether it is in your own individual feed, all the way up to the national security consequences, is to understand what's going on here, understand the new rules of the game, understand the history of how we got here, and that points to what we can do in the future. So, you know, it's, again, the, the lesson of it is a little bit, you know, to make the, you may not be interested in like war, but like war is definitely interested in you. And unlike the other forms of war, you individually will decide which side wins out in your own individual space, but also for the overall uh, outcome. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I've got this inner conflict going on right now between my personal desire to keep this conversation going for a long time because the book is fascinating <laughs> and my professional recognition that a six-hour podcast episode is probably poor practice. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, it, is a, it is a fascinating book. Uh, it's a very readable book too, I will say. It's obviously well-researched. Um, so, so thank you for taking some time and talking about it. And uh, I really enjoyed the book and, and best of luck with it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Peter. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, remember to find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn to stay up to date on our new articles, podcast episodes, and research. Also, if you're enjoying the MWI podcast, please take just a second and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right. Thanks again.